Doing the retreat and also uh, the intensive. I also always get very excited when we do intensives because uh, Baba told me in no uncertain terms to give intensives. He told me every time he saw me. And um, some disciples, the guru says, at last you've come. Not me, I just heard do intensives. Uh, so uh, it makes me very happy to fulfill that command. So tomorrow we're going to be doing the intensive. And since it's the, the end of the Guru, uh, Guru Purnima retreat, we're going to do a little chant. This is called the Guru Stotram, which is a selection of about 13 verses from the Guru Gita. And we're going to put them up there. You can join in or just uh, chill out. If you've done the Guru Gita, you'll be able to recognize them. So let's do that first, take a couple of minutes, and then we'll go on. Peace and love. 
Baba used to say at the beginning of every talk in Hindi, with great respect and love, I welcome you all with all my heart. And he would always say that that's the essence of spirituality. It's not about fancy rituals and complex uh, theologies. It's about simple movement of the heart, to welcome another person with love. And to welcome yourself with love, too, which in most cases is very difficult. So do that and do that. <clears throat> so in that spirit, I welcome you. And as I said, very special time the night before the intensive. Um, and I, all these programs are always dedicated to the great beings, the great realizers, uh, the ones who have reached uh, Purna Hunt reached perfection, uh, and, uh, uh, and these are the great resource of humanity. And when I heard that they existed, I, I rushed to India to find one so I could learn from them. And of course, the night before the intensive, the great being that I celebrate is this one. And that's Bob, early Baba, before I met him, probably from the 60s sometime. Yeah. <laughs> Next. Now that's Baba during my era. He's, I think he's in the kitchen. He's inspecting things. The fellow behind him was Maharaj, the chef, the chief cook, the Brahmin cook of the ashram. And uh, various ashram people are chopping food or doing something there. And next, and this is Baba during one of his question-answer sessions. Uh, very expressive. We used to go into his room, and uh, he, was, he has a little lavalier microphone. That wasn't for uh, uh, to uh, amplify it. That was recording it. And so they, because of that, we have the books, Satsang with Baba, great books. Uh, that so. Great, that's it? Okay. <clears throat> but we're not going to Ganeshpuri, we're going to uh, go on the tours. Baba, Baba made three tours of the West, and uh, I, uh, I came to India, and he'd just come back from his first world tour, and I went with him on the second world tour, and during that tour, he sent me out to start an ashram in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Um, <clears throat> But he used to give wonderful talks on the tour and big crowds. When the word got out about Baba and Shaktipat and so on, uh, hundreds and hundreds of people started to come and he gives these wonderful talks at night. So these are selections from uh, different question answers that Baba gave. 
And I picked some about the guru, since this is the theme of the retreat. Question, can Baba tell us why you went out in search of a guru? <clears throat> and Baba says, in my younger days, I was strong and well-built. <laughs> and I believed in the sufficiency of self-effort alone. I had practiced Ashtanga yoga religiously. Of course, most of you, many of you know that Ashtanga means the eight-limbed yoga. Uh, it's the yoga of Patanjali, which begins with do's and don'ts practices, yamas and niyamas, and then goes through uh, hatha, hatha yoga, pranayam, uh, and uh, ends up with meditation. So it's the eight-limbed, eight-part eight yoga. He practiced it religiously, following all its rules and disciplines. And it, it also includes uh, purificatory exercises, um, where you, uh, you put things up your nose and swallow cloth and all kinds of things like that. <clears throat> it's very comprehensive. Also practiced Hatha Yoga, he said, and spent periods of time with great Vedanta teachers. And he studied Vedanta in South India at the ashram of Siddharud Swami. I met at least 60 of the greatest teachers, and I learned a lot from them. But I did not acquire certainty that my inner being had been opened. Though my body was well-shaped and people admired my strength and beauty, <laughs> though they considered me highly realized, I always felt a lack within me. <clears throat> so, you know, people may think this and that, but inside you know where you stand, really. Uh, and, you know, people, he was considered a holy man, but he knew inside himself that he hadn't made the final attainment. He said, I knew I'd not attained the highest truth, and this feeling often tormented me. It compelled me to, to keep wandering around on foot, and I thought I should spend my entire life that way. He didn't come to Bhagavan Nityananda until he was 39, and the story goes that he left home at 15. So what is that, about 25 years of wandering, and he probably thought that this was it. He wasn't going to attain something. And then he met Bhagwan Nityananda and um, blew the top of his head off. But we'll hear about that. Question, how did you find out about Bhagwan Nityananda? <clears throat> Baba, during the course of my wanderings, I came upon a saint whose name was Zipuana. So do we have that? So there's a picture of, I just told uh, Giris to find that just now during the program, I realized. Uh, that's a picture of Zipruana, very quirky um, saint uh, uh, from Maharashtra. I think it's Maharashtra, Eastern Maharashtra. I went with Baba when we went, um, uh, we went to, uh, to get his elephant. A devotee gave Baba, <laughs> <laughs> Baba, Baba was given an elephant um, named uh, Swami Vijayananda, the elephant was called. And um, I was in the party that went to collect the elephant. Baba rode through the streets of the village. Nasirabad, it was, uh, oh, then we, it was close to Nasirabad, which I think is in Maharashtra. Could be Gujarat, but I don't think so. But anyway, uh, 
Baba gave a program at Zipruana's Samadhi Shrine, the little Samadhi Shrine, and he was visibly moved when he spoke about Zipruana. I had so much love for him. Here's what he says about him. He said, he was the strangest of all the saints I'd met. He used to sit on heaps of rubbish in the most out-of-the-way corners of town. He obviously neglected his body, yet his body was so purified by the fire of yoga that the garbage he was sitting on didn't affect him at all. On the contrary, a sweet fragrance came from him at all times. I know a lot of people sit on garbage, but they don't smell as sweet. <laughs> he was very old and like a skeleton, and he didn't have any teeth, but he was omniscient. He knew the past, present, and future of anyone who came to see him, and he would throw out mysterious hints, never giving a clear explanation of anything. Of course, he's what is known as a must or an avidut. Uh, and and uh, <clears throat> Baba, you know, Baba in that talk, Baba said, uh, it was very touching. Baba said, there was a lot of villagers came to hear Baba because they, uh, he's well known, you know, so they all, and he, and he said, uh, Baba said to him, while he was alive, you didn't know who he was. You ignored him. But now that he's dead, now you come seeking blessings. And he said, but it's okay. The blessings are there now anyway. But he fried them a little bit. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> he hid his, in, his inner powers so well that nobody had the slightest idea of what they were. The moment I met him, he said, stop this wandering and go straight to Ganeshpuri. It's a very good remark. I want to say that to all of you. Stop this wandering and go straight to Ganeshwari in January with us. <laughs> There's no doubt that one visit to Ganeshwari will transform your life. I say that with utter certainty. And I've probably got two or three people here who would agree with me. But <clears throat> I was astonished, he says. I stayed with him for three days. People used to, used to ask me why I kept company with such a mad, dirty old man. I told them, he wasn't crazy, we were. We appear clean on the outside, but inside we are twisted. He appeared impure on the outside, but within he was extremely pure. I developed great love for him, and so he also showered affection on me. Once he cured my headache by licking my head with his tongue. I followed his instruction and went straight to Ganeshpuri. Okay, you can put him down there. Baba had two great saints that were like mentors to him during that period, other than Bhagwan Nityananda. The other was Harigiri Baba, uh, who, the pictures must be here somewhere. Yeah, okay. Anyway, Harigiri Baba is another character and a half. He uh, wasn't naked, he used to wear clothing upon clothing, layers and layers of clothing. And uh, it was also quite uh, remarkably strange, but very highly realized. <clears throat> Question, what was your meeting with Bhagwan Nityananda like? Baba says, when I met my guru, Baba Nityananda, for the first time, I was without any, first time, for the first time, excuse me, when I met him, I was 
without any worthwhile inner realization, although I'd practiced different forms of yoga with devotion and discipline. But the minute I came into his presence, Bhagwan Nityananda caused something to happen inside me. Later, he gave me a pair of wooden sandals directly from his feet. So what happened was he received Shaktipat. There's a tremendous depiction of it in Baba's autobiography, Play of Consciousness. And Bhagwan Nityananda uh, awakened him through look. And uh, it was extraordinary. Baba had a cosmic vision around where his ashram later was. <clears throat> anyway, he also spoke to me. It felt as though his words, that through his words he'd entered my inner being. Though Muktananda appeared the same from outside, from within he was completely transformed. That day I discarded the doctrine of the sufficiency of self-effort. I experienced the value of the Guru's grace. Since then I've emphasized it to everyone. <clears throat> I knew 60 great teachers, but my inner Shakti was awakened by Nityananda alone. He was my true guru. It makes me uh, feel guilty. Have I emphasized the guru's grace enough? <laughs> no? Okay. The guru has done his work. If he's awakened, you're in a shakti. But that doesn't mean there's no place for self-effort. Self-effort and the guru's grace are like the two wings of a bird. The bird needs both to fly. So not only do you have to get awakened, you have to cooperate with it. I know many people who got the awakening and then, to use the vernacular, pissed it away. But there's a, there's a strange thing about it, is that it, once you have that awakening, it stays with you. And then it works behind the scenes sometimes. If, you're not, if your surface personality is not cooperating with it, it's waiting for you to uh, sort of come into line. Uh, because we're so cussedly stupid so reprehensibly ignorant and perversely stubborn in every possible way that sometimes it takes a while for the energy, the Shakti, to penetrate us. But it hangs around and, and gradually uh, the process happens. It may take a few lifetimes, <clears throat> a few years, a few lifetimes. Uh, Baba says, the Upanishadic seers say and the Upanishads are noble teaching. The first time the teaching of the, of the oneness of the individual soul and the absolute was, was written. And these, these are a series of scriptures which elevate uh, the seeker. And they say, you are that. You are the self. That you are Brahman. You are the absolute. That your essential nature is not different from the divine. And they boldly proclaim that, and they say, meditate on that, understand that. So he says, the Upanishadic seekers say, O seeker of liberation, go to a master who is well-versed in all the scriptures, Shrotriya, and also has a direct experience of God, Brahmanishta. So one who's well-versed in the scriptures and who has a direct experience of God. So naturally, the next question is, <clears throat> what is Shotriya and Brahmanista? And Baba says, <clears throat> one who is Shotriya can guide diverse seekers perfectly. A guru must not, must not only know the religious and philosophical truths as given in the scriptures, 
but he must also be well-versed in many worldly arts. In ancient times, gurus were able to ride horses and shoot, as well as perform other arts and skills. <clears throat> one, one, one time in, uh, in Melbourne, I was on tour with Baba in Melbourne, and um, I was in the kitchen, we were preparing lunch, and I was chopping potatoes. And um, uh, I wasn't terrific at chopping potatoes. The picture there? Oh, yeah. Oh, that, that, that's, that's on my cover of my... This moment is actually on the cover of my book, Canespri Days. And uh, he comes and shows me how to cut potatoes, and he cut them like, extraordinary fast and so on. And I was looking at him like, whoa, this guy's Superman. He can do everything. Not only does he know Brahman, he can cut potatoes. <clears throat> and he looked at me, and he says, and he's setting to get up, and he says, a guru has to know everything, he said. <laughs> I said, I'll never be able to cut potatoes like that. Anyway, <laughs> he says, um, in playing the role of the guru, you have to know everything. It isn't enough to know God. If a guru has to guide seekers living in the world, he must be familiar with their pleasures and pains, with their joys and sorrows, and with the various problems which afflict them. A true guru is master of all trades, but even that is not enough. But it's true that, you know, Baba had remarkable ability to enter into your issue. And it's not enough to, to say you are Brahman and the rest of it is nothing, but our, our situation in life is filled with human problems and difficulties, and so a true guru has to be able to guide us through those things. He says, that's not enough. The guru must also have the quality of Brahmanishta. He must have had a direct experience of God. He must have seen God as you and I see any object of the outer world. He must have been that intimate and close to God, God experience. I used to look at Baba and I, I could see that he was in that space of divinity all the time. And don't ask me how I knew that, but I knew it. <clears throat> Only such a one can be worthy to be a guru. Such a guru is like God. There's no difference between him and the divine being. He's merged his own individuality into the absolute and become one with it. He is forever free from the chains of limited existence and limited knowledge. Such gurus are badly needed in the world. We should honor such a guru with the greatest devotion and reverence because he works within us, transforming us into divine beings. Because the guru doesn't, he doesn't have something that we don't have. He has attained that which we have and he points us towards it and shows us the way to do it. And sometimes we're not willing to even take his <coughs> advice uh, because we're so committed to some other stupidity. Uh, but his every effort is to move us in the right direction towards the true self, towards our highest good, towards our true being. He says, the guru within is much closer than any outer teacher. So even the outer guru, there's a guru that is within. It's like, you know, when these uh, foreign countries put little cells of, of uh, spies inside a country. So the guru has a whole cell inside you. It's a spy of goodness and greatness within, but uh, 
we're not aware of him. But when you come in touch with the outer guru, he puts you in awareness of this little cell. And this little cell starts to operate better. And you get in touch with it inside. Terrible metaphor, isn't it? <laughs> Sorry about that. <coughs> after receiving a guru, <laughs> after receiving a guru's shakti, you will see him in meditation, in visions, and dreams. The greater your reverence, the greater your devotion, the higher you consider him to be, the more you will gain from him. Baba said that and it always struck me. The greater you think of the guru, the greater your attainment will be. If you have full devotion, reverence, and love for him, there's not the least doubt that you'll receive all that the guru has within him to give. Whether the guru wants to or not, it just is pulled right out of him by that. But you must be free from affectation, hypocrisy, and pretense. Your devotion must be genuine. Baba says, when you worship the guru, you're worshiping him for your own sake. Don't think you're doing the guru a favor when you have love and reverence for the guru, you draw all his knowledge and power to yourself automatically. This is the absolute truth. I think it is. <clears throat> like that? <clears throat> it's a mystical truth. We have a lot of resistance to it, particularly in this culture. Uh, it's, a, it's a truth that's very hidden. Um, how are we doing? Oh, I forgot to put my timer on. Well, I've got three more. I could do at least three of them. <laughs> <coughs> Question, how does a guru prepare himself for his role? Baba, a guru follows sadhana very intensely, spiritual practice, and also observes a very strict discipline. He keeps his mind under control and is also very particular about his actions. So the main discipline is an inner discipline, a subtle discipline of controlling the mind. This is the main yogic discipline, is to keep the mind moving in healthy channels, not towards anger, fear, despair, self-hatred, judgment, not to let it go into those zones, but make it go towards the divine, towards joy, towards upliftment. And this is a full-time job. If you come to know your mind, you know that the mind, before you even know it, is down some negative path. And guess what? When your mind goes down a negative path, you, get, you plummet down that path too. <clears throat> he says, he keeps his mind under control, and he's also particular about his actions. He keeps his mind and body pure. He keeps himself pure on all levels. And by purity, it doesn't mean ritual purity, but it means he keeps himself in the state of love and the state of joy, and the state of peace. This is what real purity is. After receiving his own guru's grace, his kundalini is awakened. And when this great yogic power begins to work inside, and his body becomes totally purified, it becomes like gold. Though a guru may appear to be an individual human being, from head to foot he becomes kundalini energy. His entire body consists of particles of kundalini. So this is how a guru purifies his body. Guru's main practice is that he doesn't allow any bad thoughts to stay in his mind. 
So when those thoughts come in, <clears throat> see, I was taught in my early youth to dwell on negative thoughts. When I had a case against somebody, I nursed that case. I increased that case, and I made that case stronger, and then I would bring in evidence. And then when I had a case against myself, then I would get all kinds of evidence from my life to prove what a worm of hell I was. And so this is uh, what we're taught. I'm, I wonder if it's like that in Melbourne. This certainly was like that in New York. It's not like that here. Everybody is full of love and joy. Isn't it? Naively full of love of God here. Isn't that beautiful? <clears throat> so, um, um, well, now you made me forget what I'm doing. <clears throat> so, uh, so this is how a guru purifies his body. A guru's main practice he doesn't allow bad thoughts to stay in his mind. So it's funny. It's, very, it, it's an addiction, negative thoughts. Self-hatred is an addiction. Judgment of others and jealousy, all those kinds of things are addictions. So you have to be very tough with yourself. Tell your mind, shut the hell up. Shut up. Go in a different direction. <clears throat> I got two more. How does one please the guru? And how can I overcome feelings of unworthiness during meditation? Which one do you want? One or both? Please the guru. What? Please the guru. <laughs> Who wants to please the guru? <laughs> Who's that? Who said that? Uh, uh, <laughs> Okay. <clears throat> How does one please the guru? This is uh, brilliant, actually. You don't have to please the guru. If you become pleased with the guru, the guru is automatically pleased with you. The guru is ever fulfilled. The guru is ever contented. He's always swaying in joy and ecstasy. All his desires have been gratified. So how can there be a question of pleasing him when he's swaying in inner bliss all the time? If the disciple finds that he has become pleased with the guru, then he should feel that the guru has also become perfectly pleased with him. <clears throat> so, I've, as, I, as I get older, I'm feeling more and more pleased with Baba. <laughs> yeah, true. And uh, I don't have any attainment, but I'm getting more and more pleased with Baba, so I feel that's a good sign. <clears throat> it is the disciple's pleasure with the guru which is of far greater significance than the guru's pleasure with the disciple. Even if the guru is pleased and the disciple is not pleased, if the disciple is bitter with the guru, then the guru's pleasure would not be able to help the disciple at all. So your attitude, as in everything, it's your attitude that's everything. When you have an attitude of love and openness and surrender and joy, appreciation, for the guru, the shakti comes to you. It has to come to you. Guru might even hate you, but the shakti will come to you. <laughs> so don't worry about that. <laughs> guru won't hate you. I used to think like, I would think like, Baba hates me. I would think, and I said, that's not, that's not possible. And then I would prove it to myself by everything. 
Everything proved it. Everything pr proves whatever uh, principle you bring forth. Does he still hate you? Well, I, I, since I'm liking him, that's uh, yeah, he hates me. But but um, <laughs> but I'm liking him more and more, so it must not be true. I had it set up so that when he was nice to me, he was just uh, humoring me. And when he was mean to me, that meant he hated me. So both ways it was bad. <laughs> yeah, true. <clears throat> Last one. Uh, this one I did recently, but I love it so much. I think it's, uh, it's really good. So question, how do I overcome feelings of unworthiness and inadequacy that come up during meditation. <clears throat> Baba says, and this is very typical of Baba, don't attach any importance to these feelings. That line jumps out. I heard Baba say a million times, don't attach any importance to hatred, to anger, to whatever it was. Says, and, and what I was just saying, that when you nurture those feelings and you grow them, you take them very seriously and you start going, oh, woe is me. Then you increase them. So don't pat, you know, they come up. It doesn't mean anything about you if you have a bad thought. Just let it go. Just let it go. I used to go, what does this mean about me? And hate myself worse. But just let it go. He says, you're not your feelings. You're the place where your feelings arise. The clear space of good feeling, consciousness itself. Just as in the upper spaces, clouds appear and vanish, in the space of the heart, endless feelings and thoughts arise and set. Why should you attach any special importance to them? Ignore the clouds and look for the sun in their midst. Keep your eye on the ball, on what you, on the goal, on the self, on love, on joy. There are so many things around me here, Baba says. There's no need to remove them in order to meet me. Similarly, look for the light among the clouds. As you concentrate on the light, your mind will become peaceful. Keep focusing on the highest. <clears throat> everything, that's what the yogis say. Patanjali, the yogis say, everything is about attention. Where we put our attention. Where does your mind go? What are you obsessed with? Whatever your thoughts are, if you put your thoughts, that defines your life. Um, and if you put your thoughts on the highest, it uplifts your life. So it's where our attention goes. Baba says, while meditating, you should let go of your faults. Suppose I feel angry this evening and then sit for meditation the next morning. There should be no trace of that anger left in me. I can honor myself in meditation, and meditation will come. During sleep, one sleeps and does nothing else. While meditating, you should just meditate. Don't brood about things. Don't be self-conscious about your weaknesses. Attachment and hatred may still be there, but many good qualities are there also. The point is not to honor yourself for your faults, but for your good qualities. Don't let your price Fall in the market by keeping alive the memory of your faults, attachments, and hatreds. Depending on your temperament, attachments and negative feelings may persist for quite some time. 
So it doesn't mean anything if these come up. But what does mean something is how you handle it, to get rid of it. You don't pay attention to it. Nonetheless, you should keep on cultivating good qualities. Hatred and attachment don't last. So why should your thoughts about them last? Don't brood about them. If in one's life some painful event has taken place, the mark of a wise man is that he doesn't preserve the pain in his thoughts, but forgets about it very soon. And this is the, you know, we have a culture of trauma. I had a trauma. I hear it in the ashram all the time. I had a trauma. Therefore, I have a license to brood about this trauma forever. No, you don't. You don't. You're supposed to, what you should do as a yogi is get rid of that. Forget about it. Return to peace. Because this, the more you brood about that, the more you give it life and it affects you. So the job, now some things are very, very scarring. They're called some scars. They scar our being. A very strong, shocking, horrible event affects our heart and it keeps coming. So it's very hard to get rid of it. But our attempt should be to let it go, not to dwell on it, but to let it go and turn to the light. Keep turning to the light. And that's the yogic way. The other way is the way of self-indulgence. And it, all it creates is suffering. All right, enough of a preachment. Baba's great, huh? Wonderful stuff. All right, let's meditate for a few minutes. What are we going to meditate on? We heard so many things. David, what do we meditate on? What did you like? <laughs> okay, good idea. Okay, with, within every person, no one said this to me till I met Baba. So within every person, there's the divine light of the self. There's perfection. You may feel less than, you may feel weak, you may feel afraid and alone, all kinds of things. But deeper than that, there's divine consciousness, divine joy, divine peace. So let's dig deeper. Find that place within, a place of perfection, a place of utter contentedness. And so for 10 minutes, let's focus on that. You can repeat the mantra of our lineage, Om Namah Shivaya. You can repeat that and let other thoughts melt away. So let's meditate for 10 minutes and once again, with great respect and love, I welcome you all with all my heart. Sakrana Maharaj Kijay. Let's meditate now. Ten minutes. 